Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Having a baby is supposed to be the most exciting, joyful time of a lot of women's lives, but what happens when that joy just isn't something they experience right after childbirth? And what are some of the other physical manifestations of that time, which we call medically postpartum, that a lot of people might not be prepared for or understand? Well, today I'm here in the studio with Dr. Alexandra Sueda from Kaiser, and we are talking today about postpartum depression and other medical concerns that can happen after delivery and what some of these some of these things are that we need to share with one another, but also just so that you know, just in case your spouse or loved one or you yourself are, are having a baby sometime soon, what do you need to be prepared for and where can you go for help? So I want to thank you for joining me on the on the studio today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we talked a few years ago, and you've been at Kaiser now for 14 years. Yeah. You started off doing your residency in California. I did. But you're from Hawaii. So actually, I did medical school in California, and I did my residency here in Hawaii because it was time to come home. I had it all backwards. <laughs> no. Nope, okay. Fine. So now that you've been here for a while, there's some uniqueness to what happens here in the islands. I think there's a lot of multi-generational families and a lot of ways that women learn about things because they hear about it from their friends or from their family, et cetera. Now, are there, are there common themes that you can think about that have to do with concerns that women have with postpartum depression. Is there a distribution of folks who tend to to not express themselves if they're experiencing some of these emotional concerns after pregnancy? So I think it's really fabulous that recently there's been a growing understanding of the importance of perinatal depression. Um, and we now talk about perinatal depression, which Because it could happen before childbirth. Right. Includes right, depression before they actually give birth. About 9% of women while they're pregnant actually exhibit signs of depression. Um, and about up to 10% of women after they give birth have signs of depression. Um, and it's really tricky, as you alluded to, because I think there's a lot of messaging from society and from families that women need to be super happy and super glowy when they give birth. And not all women feel that way. And One in ten. That's right. And, and can you imagine the pressure on you when there's this expectation that you feel a certain way and you just simply don't? You feel bad. And a lot of women feel incredible guilt that maybe it's some sort of value judgment on them as a mother or there's something wrong with them. So even more so than other types of depression, postpartum or perinatal depression can be really stigmatized. And I think a lot of women will not speak up about how they're feeling because they feel embarrassed or they feel shame or they feel like they shouldn't bring it up. Is it genetic? Is there a tendency for women whose mothers have experienced the same thing to have a greater tendency to have it themselves? So the messaging that we try to give is that perinatal depression can happen to anybody. At the same time, there are certain women that might have a little bit more risk. So someone who has a family history of depression or anxiety or if they've experienced depression in the past themselves, um, if they have a stressful home situation, there is more likelihood of depression. But they may have none of those things. They may have great support, no history, and still experience feelings of depression. So I guess that gets to the idea of the stigma, is that just because everything seems to be perfect and you don't have these other risk factors, that doesn't mean that you're immune. This could still happen to you. That's correct. When you... When you hear about women who have come out who have said they've experienced it, do they usually tell their OBGYN when they're 
actually having that? Or is there some, is it something that you often hear about afterwards? Can you tell when you see women come in? What are the screening tools that, that are available to us? So I think the first thing that's really important as an obstetrician provider is that we actually talk about peripartum depression before a woman even gives birth. Um, I'll often talk to people during the pregnancy about baby blues, um, which is not the same thing as peripartum depression, but majority of women will feel a little bit of mood changes after they deliver a baby. These are pretty mild, but they may sort of find themselves crying for no reason, feeling lots of ups and downs. Um, And then it tends to resolve and get better by about 10 to 14 days after they deliver. So I try to set the stage so that women understand that that's fairly normal, that most people experience that, and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. But then I take that opportunity to kind of give them some preemptive um, idea that postpartum depression is a very real thing, and if they're starting to feel symptoms of depression that aren't getting better, that are affecting their ability to function, um, then they really need to come talk to us. So that's kind of the first way to screen Um, On top of that, we have some screening tools. So they come up as questionnaires. There's some very good validated questionnaires um, that we can give women after they've given birth that will give us an idea if they have a higher risk for postpartum depression. Um, And then just asking them. The questionnaires aren't perfect. So looking at the women in front of us and seeing how they're feeling. And sometimes they can put up a good show and look happy. And when you really start asking questions like, no, really, how are you doing? then they can feel comfortable and some of their real feelings can come out. Now, you mentioned perinatal. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, even before childbirth, you bring up some of these questions. If you find that someone is significantly depressed, are there safe medications for them to use if it's determined that they need to? So it's always weighing what's more risky, taking medication or not taking medication. And there are definitely medications that have been fairly well studied in pregnancy, although the trouble with pregnancy is there's never really fantastic studies done on pregnant women. Yeah, it's kind of not really ethical. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's sort of retrospective. Hey, did this work? Or is there the risk-benefit ratio, like you mentioned earlier? How do we do do this in such a way that it doesn't put the woman or, or the future child at risk? And yeah. Right. So it's a very individualized approach. So we'll have a woman in front of us and it's we try to approach her as a partnership and we talk to her about, you know, how are you feeling? What are the risks of how you're feeling now? And these are the medications that might help you. And these are the potential risks of the medications. We think they're fairly safe, but these are some things that may have, you know, some small risks. Are those risks greater than the risk of being depressed and having trouble bonding and breastfeeding and, you know, attached to your baby. And and a lot of times women um, do need the medications. But on top of that, sometimes women can feel a whole lot better with counseling and therapy. So we sort of take a multi-pronged approach that maybe they can consider therapy or counseling. Maybe they can consider a support group. Maybe they can consider medication. And we individualize the approach depending on her and her needs and her wishes. Well, and it sounds like this multifaceted way to look at it is the way we should look at depression, pregnant or not, a man or a woman, is to say, hey, what are some of the non-pharmacologic ways that we could address this? Are there some lifestyle things that could be used as interventions? Some studies have suggested that 10 or 15 minutes of exercise is equally efficacious as low-dose antidepressants for certain populations. So there are some studies that do support some of the other ways that we can address it, whether it be activity or psychotherapy or counseling, et cetera. Does it matter if 
a woman gets pregnant at a certain age, is there a greater risk factor for having these symptoms if women get pregnant really early in their fertility cycle or if they get pregnant, you know, later in their 30s or 40s? Is there any age predominance? So there may be a little bit of a higher risk if a woman is very, very young. Um, and it's sometimes hard to tease that out from social support, relationship status. Um, and, and those issues can come up throughout a woman's lifespan. Um, so there may be some, some increased risk there for younger women. Would there be any increased risk if they used fertility like IVF or some other type of hormonal support to get pregnant? So often there can be. Um, I mean, oftentimes when you, a couple has struggled with their fertility for a long time, that's a very stressful, high-pressure situation. Um, so that can potentially increase their risk. The other scenario that might put a woman at higher risk after they deliver is if the baby is either very preterm and needs a lot of supportive care or has um, an early obstacle or illness that um, is not really what the family expected. Um, and that can definitely put a woman at higher risk for depression. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Alexandra Soweda, and we are talking today about what are some of the risks and ways that we can address postpartum depression. We will be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Alexandra Sueda from Kaiser Permanente. And today we're talking about postpartum depression. This is something that happens to one in 10 women who give birth. And we're talking about some of the risk factors and some of the interventions that might need to take place around this peripartum period to really help make sure that women bond with their babies and have a successful a successful interaction with their new family for as, for the rest of their lives certainly as soon and as early as possible. Now, right before the break, we were talking about how sometimes premature babies, sometimes that whole process of prematurity and some of the care needs they may have or any other medical obstacle could also put an increased risk for postpartum depression. Does it also have to do with the fact that once you deliver, your hormones change? And this sounds to me like a lot of this is hormonally driven in some way that we may not completely understand, and if a woman gave birth earlier than they expected, maybe that hormone shift is sort of a jolt to her body more than it might be otherwise. I think that that's rather poorly understood. You know, some of the, all the different factors that can play into how these risk factors can put a woman at increased risk. Um, you know, there are other things, for instance, like difficulty breastfeeding that can also make it very difficult for a woman to feel, um, you know, happy and comfortable afterwards. Um, or, you know, if she had a birth experience that was different than she had anticipated going into it, um, if she had a cesarean section that she wasn't expecting, or if she has more pain than she was expecting, um, you're right. There's It's a really um, emotional and trying time because the hormones are going crazy, but there's also a lot of change in your family, change in your body, change in your image. Um, you're turning into a mother or maybe a mother of two instead of one. Um, so all of that plays in. And I think how much each of those affects the depression is fairly poorly understood. When you look at the successful treatment of postpartum depression, 
where are those success stories coming from? Is it a lot of it, the psychotherapy? Is it the social support? Is it medication? Is it a combination of all of those? What is the most effective treatment for postpartum depression? So it depends on the individual woman. Some women, like I said, can just be experiencing the baby blues, just this brief period of time, and they can feel pretty horrible during that first week or two after they've delivered, but then may not need a whole lot of treatment at all, and it kind of resolves. Um, For women that have a depressive episode that lasts longer, um, medications can work, therapy can work. They tend to work better together, Um, but it is, again, very individual. Well, and that's the case even with non-pregnant women and men is that the combination of considering lifestyle changes and therapy and medicine, those therapy-medicine combination has been proven to be more effective than than just taking medicine and not having any other sort of counseling or psychotherapy with it. So we certainly have seen that in the other population that are not postpartum as well. So it's sort of lending itself to giving us the evidence that we might need to consider using both of them simultaneously. What are some of the other changes that might occur in a woman's body after giving birth that they may not expect? I mean, I know that, you know, there's a difference, cesarean section, vaginal delivery with the recovery period, but there's also sort of a preconceived notion. And if you watch any sort of news or look at any paper at the checkout stand, some of those, you know, glossy entertainment magazines, they always talk about, you know, the picture of this is my post baby body. And you see all these women who look like they've they've never given birth. And that becomes almost a model of what people expect. But what's the reality? Right. And I think that sneaks up on a lot of people. So a lot of times for women after they give birth, regardless of how they give birth, they'll still have a belly. Um, It doesn't go away right away. And so we'll sometimes see people come into labor and delivery with their pre-baby genes ready to go home with and fitting into those. And they just will not. And that's normal. I mean, our message is that a lot of... Bring us wrong. Right. Bring something soft. Bring something flexible. You're not... Elastic waistband. That's right. We don't expect the belly to go away right away. Um, And it was actually kind of sweet because Meghan Markle... Um, posted pictures of herself right after she gave birth, and she showed her postpartum belly. And it was sort of one of the first times, like you said, one of those glossy magazines showed a little bit more reality that you actually do still have a belly. Um, so there's that. Um, there's also changes to people's skin. They get a dark line down their belly. They might have darkening in their armpits and around their neck. Um, they may have a lot of extra weight after they give birth that they weren't used to having before. Um, they There's the recovery, the discomfort from whether they had a cesarean section or they just feel a little sore from a vaginal delivery. Um, and that does take some time to heal. Um, so a lot of it is sort of setting people's expectations that what they're experiencing is normal and that the recovery process after a delivery, I really try to set for them that, you know, be kind to yourself, eat healthy, exercise as appropriate, but also give yourself about six months because the change of your body from being pregnant back to not pregnant just takes some time. And is it easier, uh, you know, for younger women to bounce back after pregnancy than for older women? Or is that just, you know, old wives tale, shall we say You know, I think there's many factors that go into it. So it's not just younger versus older. It's also how healthy were you when you went into pregnancy. And you can have a young woman who's not very healthy and she'll have a harder time bouncing back than a woman who may be older but has been keeping herself quite healthy. Um, So age does play into it, but it's not the only factor. Previous medical conditions, are there certain things like high blood pressure, diabetes that could predispose someone to having a more difficult time through their pregnancy? 
So certainly, I mean, a lot of women do have high blood pressure and diabetes, or they may have seizure disorder or thyroid disorders, and so those are all considerations we have to have to treat during a pregnancy. Um, A lot of women will potentially develop those conditions during pregnancy. So about 11% of women in Hawaii have diabetes that's just during the pregnancy. That's called gestational diabetes. Um, And hypertension, um, the rates of hypertension are increasing as well. Um, And so we know one of the opportunities we have after a woman gives birth is we can actually really talk to her about what risk that puts her at in her future. So, um, for instance, women who have had high blood pressure during their pregnancy um, have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and hypertension later in their life. Women with diabetes in their pregnancy, about 70% of them will develop um, regular non-pregnancy diabetes later in their life. So I sometimes think of it as a crystal ball. Pregnancy brings out risk factors that we may not know about in a woman, and we can counsel them appropriately to have a healthy lifestyle, to eat a healthy, balanced diet, um, rich in vegetables, and um, to exercise and be physically active to try to kind of prevent some of those things that she may be kind of destined to be at risk for. And maybe delay it as well. That's right. That's right. It's really a time where we can actually practice prevention. Do you see that that 70% seems like a very high percentage, but that's probably multifactorial for what we might see here in Hawaii Those would be women who don't have diabetes starting off when they're pregnant, develop it during their pregnancy. And these days, are there any safe oral medications or are all pregnant women generally on insulin? So a lot of women who develop diabetes during their pregnancy are actually able to control their blood sugar levels just by eating an appropriate diet and being very careful to eat a diet that's not going to cause their blood sugars to go high. So that's called diet-controlled gestational diabetes. Um, But if they aren't able to control it that way, the real gold standard and first recommended treatment is actually insulin because it's been the best studied in pregnancy. There have been some studies of oral agents, and there may be more coming in the future. But right now, most women who can't control their sugars with diet do end up going on insulin. And they may be eating the diet perfectly. It's just their body is not responding well to the diet, so they may need the insulin. And will they be able to get off of it after pregnancy? Most women, yeah, most women who have diabetes just in the pregnancy can get off insulin afterwards. But we want to be mindful that they have risk for diabetes later, and so they should be screened for diabetes at regular intervals in their future. And that does not predispose them to postpartum depression. It's just a different medical condition, or is there an association between the two? So it's a different medical condition for the most part. Now, if they've struggled with that or if their baby has had some effects because of their diabetes, there can be a link potentially, but, um, but for the most part, they're separate medical conditions. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Alexandra Sueda from Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about those really rational expectations of what this postpartum time is going to be like for women and ways that we can help support those who have just given birth and help them through this transition time. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Alexandra Sueda from Kaiser Permanente. And today we're talking about risk factors and identification of postpartum depression. It's something that you may hear about that sometimes gets as as significant enough as to cause psychosis. But in a lot of cases, it's just something that can be identified treated in a variety of different ways and hopefully help to restore that natural bonding experience for women as they give birth, whether it be their first child, their second, their third, however many they may have. Now, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about different medical conditions, and we talked about diabetes as being a significant risk factor when you get this in the gestational time for having diabetes later in life. And this may be an early intervention time to really help women to recognize that this is where their future is headed medically and to find some ways to try and intervene so that they can avoid having that or delay having those diagnoses in the future. Is it similar for high blood pressure as well? Absolutely. So when you have high blood pressure during pregnancy, and and there's a whole spectrum of high blood pressure conditions in pregnancy. It can range from just a little bit of high blood pressure alone all the way to a condition called preeclampsia or eclampsia. Um, But any of those conditions can predispose someone to having hypertension later in their life. It's estimated that they have five times the risk of having high blood pressure later. Um, So Again, it's similar counseling. We want to make sure that they have yearly blood pressure checks after they've given birth. Most women with high blood pressure just in the pregnancy will end up having normal blood pressure within a few weeks of giving birth, but they still need to check annually to make sure they don't develop hypertension. As you know, there's no symptoms to high blood pressure when people first develop it generally. Silent killer. Silent. And, And before they know it, there can be damage to all their other organs. So we really try to make sure that these women get back for care on a regular basis. Are there different guidelines for blood pressure during pregnancy than there are for the other general adult population? So we use a cutoff of 140 over 90 in in pregnancy as well. Um, So it's fairly similar to the general population. And medication-wise, there is some limitations. So there are some limitations. If someone comes into pregnancy with high blood pressure, there are certain medications we would not want to use. Generally, if someone's planning to get pregnant and they're already taking blood pressure medication, they should check with their doctor to make sure that they don't need to switch to something else before they get pregnant. Because like we've mentioned earlier, it's kind of hard to do clinical trials on blood pressure medications or any medicine. So we are looking more at historical what medications have worked way back in the past and if they're safe, then those would be the ones that we would kind of tailor the treatment to That's if correct. necessary. That's correct. And it is important for women with high blood pressure um, to be taking medication if they need it. Some women, when they find out they're pregnant, knee-jerk stopping all their medication. Um, and that's really not the right approach either because then all of a sudden their blood pressure goes out of control and that can be dangerous to them or to the baby. So I think the best approach really is if you know that you're planning to get pregnant to talk to your doctor and make sure you're on a safe medication that you can continue through the pregnancy. Now, I alluded to the fact that sometimes postpartum depression can lead to a whole different sort of psychological psychiatric condition, postpartum psychosis. Is there any way to identify who might be at risk for that out of the postpartum depression population? So that's pretty rare, but it can happen. And um, it can be extremely um, devastating for the woman and for her family. Um, So a woman who has maybe a history of some sort of psychiatric diagnosis in the past um, or some sort of psychosis in the past may be at higher risk. Um, But again, sometimes it's hard to completely predict. The other thing we know is that sometimes, and I think there's a growing body of research on this, that 
we're understanding that women who go through a traumatic delivery actually have a higher risk of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder just related to their delivery. Um, I don't want to make it sound like everybody who has a delivery is at risk for that, but there are women who have a delivery very different than what they expected or it was very stressful or very scary for them. And so it's important for all of us as providers to be aware that she may be exhibiting some signs of PTSD. And what could be done if that's the case? So again, individualizing our our treatment plan, I would definitely refer her to um, a mental health specialist to make sure that she's in good hands from someone who has a specialty in that. Um, and talking to her about therapy, medication, lifestyle change. Is there anything loved ones can do to help? I mean, I often think that if people around a woman who just gave birth can recognize some of the needs that she may have, or maybe even if they don't recognize, maybe, you know, the, the father of the baby is just not able to understand or recognize some of these things, or maybe just doesn't know that these things are possible. What can be done... For, for people around her, what can loved ones do to really help support the woman and this new child, this new family that she's creating? So I think regardless of the woman and how her mood is exhibiting, I, a new mom needs a lot of support. Um, I think there's a lot of pressures on new families to do it all and to be perfect. And when the baby's sleeping, they may want to do the laundry instead of taking a nap. But if a family can support that and let her sleep and, you know, basic things like sleep, rest, exercise, those are very important for a woman's um, self-care after she's given birth. So if the family can support that, that might even help prevent depression. Um, But if they're noticing that she doesn't seem herself, um, feels guilty, is crying for small reasons, and especially if that's extending past the baby blues time, if it's extending past two weeks, really if they cannot give her the message that what's wrong with you or make her feel guilty for feeling that way, just loving understanding and support and encourage her to talk to her provider about how she's feeling. And there would be a normal number of postpartum visits, which would be an opportunity for her OB and potentially the baby's pediatrician to intervene as well. That's right. I mean, American College of OBGYN recommends that a provider touch base with their patient either through phone or in physical contact within three weeks because so much of this can happen in the first few weeks after they give birth. And then we do a comprehensive in-person visit by 12 weeks postpartum, typically around four to six weeks. Um, And we do um, approach how she's feeling at that visit. That's very important. There's other issues we want to bring up, too, though. We always want to talk to her about how her breastfeeding is going and also future family planning. A lot of times the thing that people don't think about after they give birth is are they planning another kid? Kind of getting pregnant again is the last thing on their mind because they haven't had to think about birth control for the last nine months. And it's amazing how quickly someone can get pregnant again. So we really try to address that and find out how best we can support their next pregnancy. And, you know, you've alluded to the fact that all of this family support and this need for people to be around. Do we give enough leave after childbirth here? (laughs) I mean, I guess is that a silly question? Yeah. But do we give enough leave to mothers and or fathers to help them to support this transition time? I think that a lot of new parents don't find that they feel they have enough leave. It's very, very difficult. Um, It's Um, A lot of people really just get maybe six weeks or so after they've given birth, um, sometimes 12 weeks if they use their family medical leave. Um, But I I find that a lot of new moms don't find that to be enough. And some of them don't want to go back to work. They have this new baby. Who's going to watch the baby if they don't have the family support of 
you know, their own mother or in-laws or someone else who can help take care of the child, they don't feel comfortable leaving after this. Right. I mean, there's worry about who's going to be taking care of the child. There's also the financial worries because really for disability, it covers maybe about six weeks. And after that, a lot of women are taking leave without pay and a lot of families can't really afford that. So it puts a lot of financial stress on a family. Um, other, there are other countries that do it differently. Well, and maybe someday we'll look at some of them for uh, models of how to do a little bit better ourselves. All right. I want to thank you for sharing with us today on The Body Show. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Alexandra Sueda practices at Kaiser Permanente, has been there for almost a decade and a half already. I'm giving away her age, and she certainly has helped bring many children into this world and hopefully has been the resource for her patients that I'm certain she has been to try and help them through this transition time. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.